when bad Christians happen to good people. How many of you guys know bad Christians? You guys know any bad Christians? How many of you guys know me? Keep your hand up. Uh, Bad Christians happen to good people all the time. And last week, uh, we talked about God's marketing problem. I'm really looking, I've been looking forward to the series because uh, I think part of the reason that many people aren't interested in Jesus is because they've had bad experiences with those who have claimed to be followers of Jesus. And in order for us to move forward on mission, in order for people to move forward that maybe are far from Christ, I think this is an important topic to talk about. And we ended last sermon with recognizing that there's many wounds and hurts that some of you have from people that have claimed to be Christians or claimed to be followers of Jesus. And any time that happens, we need to acknowledge that they have misrepresented God or misrepresented Christ, that they're a work in progress like we all are. But especially if there was somebody in authority or somebody you looked up to or somebody you had a certain expectation of and they failed you, sometimes we shut the door on God as we shut the door, uh, close the doors on our hearts because we don't want to be hurt anymore. And if you are someone that claims to be a follower of Jesus, uh, I think it's important for us to talk about this. And so we talked about hypocrisy last week, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, when a man who accepts the Christian doctrine lives unworthy of it, it is much clearer to say he is a bad Christian than to say he is not a Christian. And that's true, because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're not saved by works. We're not saved because we did enough good things that we got okay in God's books. And because of that, we come to relationship with Jesus through grace, through his forgiveness, through his invitation, through his initiation. And so because of that reality, which is good news, all of us in some form are trying to live a type of life that we are falling short of. That's the human condition. That's what the Bible calls sin. That's why we have a need for a Savior. That's why we have a need for forgiveness. But for some people, the gap of what they're confessing and how they're living uh, is greater and wider. And I think every one of us have had bad Christians happen to us. The name Christian means little Christ. It's not something that people called themselves. It says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It didn't say the disciples called themselves Christians for the first time at Antioch. No, other people called Christians, Christians. That's where the name came from. It came from people who weren't Christians. And the reason they called them Christian was because the way they were living reminded them of the way that Jesus lived. The things they were living out were in line with what Jesus taught. And so you remind me a lot about Jesus, so we're going to call you Little Christ. Many years ago, we had a guy on staff. I won't, uh, I won't tell you his name, uh, but it rhymes with Denver. His name, uh, and many of you guys don't know Denver, but Denver at that time was leading our junior high youth ministry. You know, there's a, there's a certain expectation of someone who's on staff, who's leading students, who's trying to point people towards Jesus. Am I right? Would you have a parent have a certain expectation of that type of individual? I know I would. So Denver had a little thing going with one of his friends. His, friends, his, his friend drove a Nissan Sentra. 
And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the brains of young adults, uh, he thought it was a good idea, a fun idea, that him, him and his friend would have this little game that they would play where they would flip each other the bird uh, when they passed each other on the road. You know, so they would honk and give each other the finger. And uh, it was a fun little joke between the two of them. And, and so there's this one moment where, uh, where Denver saw his friend in his Nissan Sentra pull up behind him, and he honks and he flips the bird, uh, gives the car the finger, and then uh, continues to drive to the church office parking lot. Uh, and the car didn't detour where he assumed his friend would detour back to his house. It followed him into the church parking lot. Uh, and then the car pulls up beside him, and much to his chagrin, uh, he sees Willie, who was our lead pastor at the time. <laughs> Unbeknownst to Denver, Willie had just purchased a Nissan Sentra for his, uh, for his car. And Willie just glares at him through the window, no, uh, no words. And, uh, but that was shortly followed by a meeting in Willie's office. Uh, Denver's come a long way. He's, he's leading, a, leading a great church now in, in Winnipeg, and uh, we talk often. Uh, but, but we're all in process to some degree. And, and God is patient with us. And we all also need to be patient with one another. But there is a reality, and we can't ignore it, that when you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you're in a position of influence among other people, there's an expectation on how you live. So many of us, we fall short of this expectation. And the result is that we wear masks. And this is what the, the name, uh, what, what the name of hypocrite comes from. It comes from the Greek word hypocrites, which means an actor or one that wears a mask. And so when we fall short of this gap and we think there's an expectation of me, I can't fulfill this expectation, the easiest thing to do is to wear a mask and pretend like we got it all together and that we're somebody different. So part of this series is not only... Uh, moving past areas where we've been wounded or hurt, but it's also the courageous invitation for those who follow Jesus to take down the mask. It's actually not helping you. It's not helping Jesus. And I think it's affecting our witness to who Jesus is in the world. We need to stop pretending So, I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but I want to spend some time this morning talking historically about how we got to where we got to. And so, for the next chunk of time, it's, it might be a little bit more academic than some of you would like, uh, but stick with me, because I think where we came from, how we got to where we are, has a huge implications for how we choose to live today and what we need to be mindful of today. So question, what was behind the explosive growth of the early church? So we know Jesus, he gathered his apostles, he he was crucified, he was resurrected, he sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and he sent those who were his followers into the world to be his representatives. In a time of severe persecution under the Roman Empire, yet under that persecution, the church experienced rapid, miraculous growth. It's a fascinating question to explore, and many people have explored it. Uh, One of those people, his name is Alan Creeder. 
I'm going to borrow from here in the beginning um, of the sermon in this question. And he's wrote an incredible book on the early church, and it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's not very enjoyable uh, reading if you're just looking for some coffee table reading, uh, but if you really want to dive into uh, some of these questions around the early church, it's, it is a great read. And he has a radical thesis. It's actually not that radical. It's, uh, if you actually read the early church fathers, you'll see that it's very true. He has a thesis that he develops in the book on why he believes the church experienced rapid growth and then what happened after that. And so the first thing, it's in the title, the patient for men is patience. Everybody say patience. The church talked about patience and wrote about it. Christian writers called patience the highest virtue, the greatest of all virtues. If you go into the early church fathers, you read their writings, you will be amazed by how often they talk about patience. Now compare that for a second, how often you hear me or the church nowadays talk about patience. Put, put, the, put the amount of times you've heard a sermon on patience up, in, up on your hand. How many times have you heard a sermon on patience? I see a two. Two. I don't think I've ever preached on it. Okay? We don't talk about it. It's not, you know, in our world, patience is a bad word. We don't want to even talk about it. Uh, because we think if, we, if God is wanting us to be patient, he's going to put us in a traffic jam or something. That's, that's not what we want. But patience was one of the essential virtues of the early church. The early church fathers wrote about it constantly. They concluded that they, trusting in God, should be patient, not controlling events, not being anxious around what was happening around them, never using force or power to achieve God's ends. Patience was rooted in their faith and belief that ultimately God was in control. And because they believed that God was in control, that the God who sent Jesus to earth, that they died for our sins, who was resurrected today, conquered death, and has put all enemies under his feet, that this God who was in control uh, was in control, and so they didn't need to be impatient in their lives. They didn't need to do God's work for him. And so the early church encouraged their people to function in patience, to, be, to, to have faith, to wait on God. To trust that God was going to do what he, was, he said he would do. The second thing is habitus. Everybody say habitus. Sounds like a really fancy word, and all it really means is uh, the habits that form us. Reflexive bodily behavior, the things we naturally do, the things we default to, what your habits are. And sources indicate that early Christians grew in numbers not because they won arguments with all of their non-Christian friends. It was not because they had a clear mission strategy. They actually didn't sit around and talk about, you know, their strategy for reaching the world around them. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that wasn't what they did. It was because their habitual hate behavior rooted in patience was distinctive and intriguing. The world looked the world around them looked at them and said, your habits are different from the rest of the world. They're different. And when challenged about their faith, when challenged about their ideas, the followers of Jesus didn't get into arguments with people. They would just simply point to their own life. They would point to their own testimony. So they wouldn't venture into this world of let's argue about ideas, but they would actually say, 
I'm following Jesus. This is what it means for me in my life. And here's the evidence of what has happened in my life. They believe that their habitus, their embodied behavior, was eloquent, that it was beautiful. Their behavior said what they believed. It was an enactment of their message. Their habits. That was the loudest thing about them. Here's another big word. Catechesis. Say that word. The early Christians were uncommonly committing to forming habits of their members. So they emphasized catechesis. And you might have heard of the word catechism, right, which, was, which were when they would go to classes or formation places to being formed. They would go to catechism classes and preparation for baptism. Now get this. This, this blew my mind. People, when they wanted to follow Jesus... They actually weren't allowed to go to the worship service of the Christian community. The first step would be to go to the catechism classes. And catechism classes would prepare one for baptism. The amount of time it typically took for someone to enter into the catechism classes to being baptized was a span of three years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now, did, now just think for a second, like, like at SunWest, we, we spontaneously baptize. Like some of you guys have been like, I want to get baptized today, and then we baptize you. And, but you go back 2,000 years ago, you say, I want to get baptized today. They say, just wait. We got this really great idea. You're going to come before church service. We're not going to let you into church service yet. Uh, we're going to do three years of classes. Are you in? Does it sound like a good idea? What was going on? So their habitus, their habits were so, um, they were so loud, they were so impactful in the communities around them that people didn't know what was happening, but they said, I want to be a part of that. And so here's the rub. That the early church was ruthless in this process because they believed for someone to claim to be a follower of Jesus that will live their life nothing like Jesus will actually taint and diminish the testimony of Jesus. And so they prioritize spiritual formation and behavior and habits before one would ever identify as part of a faith community or a Christian. And so, now contrast this with the explosive growth that happened in the early church, and you start to scratch your head. I don't understand. You mean they, they didn't make it easy for people? They raised the bar? They made people go to classes before they could join worship services or be baptized or, or take communion? And yes, these things were all true. But there was something so compelling and attractive behind the way that the followers of Jesus were living that they said, I, I want to go through that process. I want to I be made like Christ. It wasn't until the third year of catechism class that they talked about the gospel. Get that. So it's a little bit backwards to how we think today. 
They wanted to see if someone could demonstrate the capacity or the ability to live in a Christ-like way. Because when they decided to proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, they wanted to know that there was a following that was actually going to happen. And the last thing, ferment. Everybody say ferment. And uh, you might think of wine or beer or something when you think about this word, but the, the, the word is like, it, it, it is, the fermenting refers to what happens over time when God's invisible power is allowed time to create change. And so what outsiders saw was not their worship, it was their habits. The outsiders looked at Christians and saw them energetically feeding the poor people and burying them and caring for boys and girls who lack poverty, property and parents and being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners. They interpreted these actions as works of love and they would say, look, look at how the Christians are living. Look at how they want, love one another. They wouldn't say, hey, listen. That, that wasn't what they said. They didn't say, hey, listen to their message. They didn't say, hey, read what they write. The primary response of those who were outside of the Christian faith would say, look, look. And so we have these things, patience, habitus, catechesis, and fermenting that was happening in the early church. Christianity's truth was visible. It was embodied and enacted by its members. It was tangible. It was sacramental. It means that, that people could actually see and feel the results of the Christian faith. The church's primary witness was a product not of what Christians said, but about how they lived. Cyprian, an early church leader and theologian, said it profits nothing to show forth virtue in words and destroy truth in deeds. Let me say that again. It profits nothing to show forth virtue in words and destroy truth in deeds. An early church preacher in what is known as the second letter of, to Clement wrote, when our actions do, do not match our words, they turn from astonishment to blasphemy and they dismiss Christianity as some kind of myth or error. Our actions need to match our words. Theologically, they believed that the God whom they worshipped revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth, an embodied human who at ultimate cost demonstrated the way to live and that Jesus' way was saving and life-giving for individual humans and to their communities. It was vital for the Christians to live in this way, unusual though it was because they thought that it was true. Evangelistically, which is a word that means telling people the good news, the church's primary witness was a product not of what they said, again, but how they lived. So that's what Alan Creter writes in The Patient Ferment. Patience, habitus, catechesis, ferment. The belief that we didn't have to rush God, but we just had to follow God, become obedient to what he was calling us to do, and trust him in the results of what that was going to mean in our world. So we have the early church. This patient ferment in the first century. And this went on for a couple of centuries. And then we run into someone named Constantine in the fourth century. At this time, many belief systems had the right to coexist. In Rome at that time, it was a smorgasbord of different belief systems. It was a buffet, except for Christianity, because it was the new kid on the block in the belief systems. And because they claimed that Jesus was king exclusively, 
And this put them at odds with Rome. And so that was the, why the early Christians were being persecuted. And so you have, emperor, you have Constantine who became emperor. And in 312 AD, uh, he gives credit and talks about how the God, uh, he saw a vision and believes that the God of the Christians gave him victory, gave him military victory. And from that point, he wanted Christianity to become the official religion of the empire. But here's the thing. Constantine was impatient. That's why he was so violent. He was impatient. He wanted to conquer the world, the the surrounding world. He wanted the, the empire of Rome to spread. But he was an impatient guy. He didn't want to participate in formation. He didn't want to He didn't want to pay attention to habitus, the way his habits were going to change. He didn't want to participate in catechism. He waited till he was on his deathbed to be baptized just because he wanted to make sure he didn't go to hell and was in God's good books. And here's the thing. The church didn't insist on the character formation of Constantine. Why? Well, at that time they were being persecuted Right? Many of them were being martyred. At the very least, they were being ridiculed. They were being pushed out to the fringes of society. And here they have an emperor that says he wants to be a Christian and he wants to make Christianity the official religion of the empire. And so we go from this position of being on the bottom to being on the top. We go from the position of being weak and, and being persecuted to having power and eventually to having wealth. And that sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Isn't the whole thing we were looking for was God's kingdom to become the kingdom of this earth? Right? And so there was a compromise that was made in the fourth century. It doesn't matter how you live. What matters is having the greatest impact as quickly as we can in the most efficient way as we can. And, hey, we were going to get to be comfortable out of this deal. So let's do it. Let's do it. So as a result of this, we have something called Christendom, which basically means in the widest sense, it means Christianity as a territorial phenomenon. Christendom refers to a time period in the Middle Ages of Western Europe when all of society, church, state, schools, work, art, was united under the one umbrella of Christianity. Whether in work, education, politics, family, or money, all of the life was ordered around the core beliefs of Christianity. For most of medieval Europe, Christianity's influence dominated all of life. Christ Endem would eventually move overseas to North America, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Christ Endem. The world, politics, economics, religion, everything came together. And all it took was for the church to compromise a little bit on habitus and character formation. And so we have Constantine and Christ Christendom in the 4th century. And then eventually, in the 16th century, a thousand years later, we have the Reformation. And so what happened in the Reformation was the political world and the church became one and the same. Your status in the world was tied to your status in the church. Church leaders started giving indulgences, which basically means indulgences, indulgences could be purchased by a priest 
And those indulgences were going to lessen your punishment when you died. You could buy any indulgence. indulgence. You could buy an indulgence for a loved one. You could buy one personally. But it was going to be to your benefit in eternity. And so there's a guy named Martin Luther that had an issue with this. And he said, this isn't right. When he read and studied the scriptures, he saw that no man had a corner market on God. And for the church to represent a gospel that had to be purchased or that people had to jump through the right hoops was just wrong. When he read his scriptures, he saw that people were saved by grace, not by works. And so out of the Reformation came these five solas. These five alone statements, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we're going to focus on the second one, or the one that's listed there at the top, uh, grace alone. The Reformation did little to change the Christendom framework. It, did, it divided up territories and offered various versions of Christianity that would govern each territory. So you had Catholicism, you had Lutheran, you had Reformed, and you had all these other branches of Christianity that came off of the Reformation. But the emphasis was grace alone. And it's well documented that after the Reformation, people that claimed to be followers of Jesus, because they believed in grace alone, lived however they wanted to because they knew that they weren't saved by works. And then what's next? In the 18th century, we have something called evangelicalism. And we talk about it a lot. We hear about it a lot in the news a lot. But if you talk to somebody that says, what, what's an evangelical? Most people couldn't answer you. You'd probably get a huge variety of answers. You might get some response out of uh, certain Christian beliefs. Uh, but just as likely, you might get some response out of what that means for a political position. Evangelicalism, at its very essence, was just a development from the Reformation. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And so in and of itself, the evangelical idea was not a bad idea. It focused on being saved by grace. It focused on people making a decision to follow Jesus. It focused on the exclusivity of Jesus, that Jesus alone was Savior. His death and resurrection is the way, the truth, and the life. The importance of making a decision, of repenting and turning from your sin and following Jesus, that was the emphasis of evangelicalism. But soon, soon as in now, people don't know what the word means. It means a whole bunch of things. It was born in the assumption of Christendom. So I want you to follow with me here. So in Constantine... Right, This whole idea of a Christian nation formed. And then we had the Reformation. And Martin Luther says, that was, there's some twisted things about that, which we would all say, yes. Part of the thing we've got to correct is this idea of grace. You don't, you, it's not a top-down thing. You can go directly to God, and God can give you grace, absolutely. But you see, in the Reformation period, the church on the whole was still very much aligned with the political world. Christendom didn't end. It was still happening. The assumption that everybody was a Christian and that society was ran on Christian values still existed. Christendom moves into North America. We have this phenomenon called evangelicalism. 
And much of what we see in the evangelical world right now is people grasping and fighting for Christendom, to making sure they don't lose it. Because the assumption is that our nation should be a Christian nation. Are you guys following with me? Okay, I got six people following with me. Anybody need me to preach that whole section one more time? Any takers? Okay, if you fell asleep, go back and listen to the ten, last 10 minutes because uh, it's going to set you up for what's coming next. We want a world that behaves like Jesus, I think, because it takes the pressure off of us to actually behave like Jesus. We want our nation and our country to follow Jesus so that we don't have to face any resistance when we want to follow Jesus. But there's a problem with this. Constantine, the Reformation, modern evangelicalism all have something in common. They breed a Christianity that demands nothing of our behavior, and it doesn't ask anything of us for transformation. You can see the common theme through all three of these, that your behavior, that's really messy. It doesn't matter because I'm crossing it out anyways. Your behavior actually doesn't matter. And it all started with a compromise that was made to Constantine, which eventually spread through Christendom. That becoming a Christian was more about a label, more about a status, more about a, uh, a position in your belief system, the, th the ideas that you believe in, than anything that had to do with how you behaved or how you lived. This was the exact thing that the early church tried very hard to protect from. Because they knew that if people claimed to follow Jesus but didn't actually follow Jesus, then the testimony of Jesus would suffer. Now, this is obviously an oversimplification of church history, but I'm doing it in this way just to help you see the main point here. And so I want to ask this question, what's next? What's next? I think that our world is sick and tired of people talking about what they believe and thinking that how they behave doesn't have to match. I think we have a major hypocrisy issue. We have a major mask-wearing issue. And it shows up on my Facebook feed, on my Instagram feed. It shows up in calling you know, leaders and church leaders and megachurch pastors and politicians and all these people to account. We, we want someone out there to follow Jesus for us. We believe in the kingdom of God. We believe in Jesus in our heads. But the pressure we've taken off of us to actually follow him and we're expecting someone else to do it for us. And here's my prediction. I think what's next is a church that understands that Jesus isn't looking for believers. He's looking for followers. Jesus isn't looking for believers. He's looking for followers. Now, if you've been around SunWest long enough, you know, Matt, you're contradicting yourself. You, you said that, you know, belief is important. And yes, if you understand what the word belief comes from in Scripture, it comes from 
There's my little rabbit trail. It comes from the word pistis, which is faith, but they don't have a word, they don't have a verb for faith. And so they translate it as believe. And so every time in your Bible it says believe, it's actually talking about faith. It's not talking about intellectual ideas. So yes, if you use belief in the biblical sense, Jesus is looking for belief. He's looking for faith. He's looking for people that will actually trust him with the way that they live their lives and trust that he's in control and they can live in patient followership of him. But if we define belief as in the Western world of intellectual ideas, Jesus is not looking for that type of belief. He's looking for followers. I think part of the reason that the world doesn't want to listen to anything that followers of Jesus have to say anymore is because we're not listening to anything that Jesus says herself. Now, I'm sorry if this sounds harsh, but trust me, there's good, there's good news in it. There's good news. So when we talk about salvation, it's the word sozo, which means saved, healed, delivered. When we talk about how God comes to save, heal, and deliver, we'll see that often in our language, we talk about it in the past tense, that we were saved, that when Jesus died on the cross and he said it was finished, it was done, and we are saved, and that was in the past, and awesome. And sometimes we talk about salvation in the future. Less and less in wealthy societies do they talk about future salvation, but in poor, in the places of the poor, uh, future salvation is a really important aspect of the gospel. But we believe that someday Jesus is coming back and he's going to complete salvation. We are going to be saved. We're going to be delivered. We're going to be ultimately healed where there's going to be no more sickness, no more dying, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's true. But what we don't often talk about is that salvation in Scripture is also present. Salvation happened, salvation is happening, and salvation will happen. All three of those ideas is a biblical idea. Now let me just paint this picture really quickly for you. And this is the S word. My title this morning was the S word. And you've been wondering, what is the S word? The S word is not salvation, it's sanctification which is a really fancy church word that we don't use anymore, and I don't use it because no one knows what you're talking about. But uh, essentially what sanctification means is the process of being saved. We're a work in progress. But we are being saved. There is transformation. There is change. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I love this passage because it brings two important realities together. Continue to work. Who's he talking to? People. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to the Corinthian church, but he's also talking to us. Continue to work at it. It means it's not like a, you know, you said a prayer one time or you believe the right things and so now you just go on living the way you want to live. He says, no, continue to work at it. This is hard work. Becoming Christ-like is no easy thing. So you got to work at it. You got to try. You got to put time in. You got to put effort in. But then it says, for it is God who works in you. And so we see this partnership that happens in being saved and being sanctified and becoming like Jesus. Yes, God does a work. God does things in our lives. He's going to do things in your life that you could never do apart from him. He's going to transform things, heal things, change things in your life that you couldn't have done apart from God. But here's the thing. He doesn't do it apart from you. 
He chooses not to. He chooses to work with you. These two things go step and step together. We work and God works. When I choose to follow Jesus, I don't leave the rest up to him. I work with him. I partner with him. I wrestle with God. I actively have to follow God. If being a Christian means being like Christ, that means it takes action. It takes behavior. But it also takes trusting God, being patient, because we know that ultimately God is in control. And so I work, yes, but there's a humble recognition that I'm not the one in control and that I rely in faith that God will change me and change the world around me. Us working, God working. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, For by that one offering he forever made perfect. It's talking about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Those who are being made holy. So right here, you have past and ongoing in the present, both together in the same verse. That it was finished, that God made perfect, that what he did was complete, what he did was enough, it was sufficient, what God has done for us. But on the other hand, we are in the process of being made holy. We're in the process of being saved. We're in the process of becoming like Jesus, of being sanctified. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the message of the cross is Foolish for those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. We who are being saved, we are in process. Last one, 2 Corinthians 2.15, our lives are are Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. We are in process. And we take that and we think that's an excuse for being a bad Christian. It's not. What the Bible is telling us is becoming a Christian, becoming Christ-like is an ongoing process and it's going to take work. You signed up for it. When you said, I'm going to follow Jesus, it meant that there was a following and a behavior involved. It's a random slide change. (laughs) So yesterday, you like that transition? Uh, Yesterday, I was running through these notes and I knew there was like a, there was a lot of content. It was really heady. And I'm like, Lord, I need, I need a way to say this in a succinct, simple way. Silas comes downstairs and he's like, hey, Dad, you want to do this? You want to build this thing with me? And I said, not right now, Silas. I'm trying to think of how to explain this thing in a, simple way. And he's, and he's like sitting at the table. He's like, come on, dad. I'm like, Silas, I'm trying to work on my sermon. Uh, and so I'm like, just do it yourself. Just try it yourself. I'm here if you need to run something by me, but you're totally capable. You can do it all on your own. And so he sits down at the table, opens up this box. And this was something that was given to him like years ago for his birthday. And for whatever reason, he decides last night, this is the time, Dad, that we got to build this thing. I was like, it's been collecting dust in your closet for years, and you picked this moment. Uh, not going to happen. So he goes, and he, bu- he tries to build it, and he, he's got the instructions out, and, you know, and he's trying to read the instructions, and he's just, uh, I hear these complaints. And he's like, Dad, he keeps asking me questions. I'm like, Silas. But fine. So I had four options when Silas asked me. He said, uh, I could just say no, which is how I first started. No, there's no way. I could say build it yourself, which was my second thing I said. 
I could respond and say, I'm going to build it for you, which was the third thing that crossed my mind because it was going to be way easier if I could just do it myself. So I go upstairs, I'm going to build it. Come down in 20 minutes. Or I could say, let's build it together. So I responded eventually in the fourth way. I said, I'll help you, but I'm not doing it all for you. You've got to participate too. So we sit down at the kitchen table, and as we're working, I realize that the very thing I was like so mad about, I needed God to give me, God, I need that metaphor. I need that. How do I explain this? I'm like, this is happening. And I, I was like, man. And often it's in the interruptions in our life that God speaks to us the most clearly. And we're like, no, I, I got important things to do, God. Uh, and so I'm sitting, I'm interrupted by my kid. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, this, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And so, uh, you know, I'm taking, I started taking pictures while we're doing it. I'm like, this is good. I'm going to use this in the morning. Uh, so here we are. Here, here, here we are in process. The solar rover being built. We saw the picture on the front of the box. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is what this little solar rover is going to look like. And then we looked at the instruction manual, and we're, and we're trying to figure out how to put it all together. And we're in process. I'm not sure how this thing is going to even look like the picture, but I trust the process. I read the instruction manual. I invite Silas to participate with me. And then a few minutes later, look what happened. And... And here's the thing. I was like, I was like, okay, this, this works really, really good. And then I'm going to bed that night, and then I'm like, excuse me for the cheese, but I'm like, it's solar powered. It's solar powered. I mean, that means like the whole energy and force that makes this thing move does not come from us. It actually comes from God. It moves it forward. It's the one that takes it from point A to point B. You know, all, all Sai and I had to do was follow instruction, create the environment, put the things together in the way that we were instructed to do, and then be patient and wait for a power that was beyond us to do the rest of the work. You were bought with a price. The solar rover I spent some money on. A few years ago, I bought it with a price. $20 of hard-earned cash. And Cy received that gift. And he put that gift in his closet. And days went by, years went by, and he didn't dust that thing off, he didn't care about it, except one day, last night, he decides, I think it's time to take it out. Some of you have received God's gift of salvation, his invitation to be in relationship with him. It's maybe a prayer you made a long time ago. Might be something you responded to. Maybe it was here at Sun West. Maybe your step of baptism was that proclamation. Maybe you raised a hand, maybe came forward for prayer. Maybe it was in your bedroom. I don't know where it was, but you, you actually opened your heart and said, God, I want that gift. And so God gave you the gift. And then maybe, because we live in Christendom and, and we actually don't require a whole lot of what it means to follow Jesus, we, we just, oh, that was nice and I'm glad that, you know, I'm going to be saved one day or I was saved, and, but it's not for now, so I'm going to put it in my closet. And 
unlike an earthly father who gets annoyed when you pull that box out of your closet, whose first response to you is no, or first response is do it yourself, or first response is, well, just let me do it because you don't know how to do it. Um, God is the perfect heavenly father, and when you decide to take that out of the box and you decide to actually activate it and say, I'm going to live into this, he doesn't respond with no. He doesn't respond with do it yourself. He doesn't even respond with, I'm going to do it myself because I know how to do it better. He responds with, if you'll do it with me, I'll do it with you. Years ago, you decided you wanted to follow Jesus and be like Christ. And he's inviting you to take that gift out of the closet and say, if you do it with me, I'll do it with you. And like the prodigal son story, he is always waiting, always available, that the first instance of you turning towards him saying, Jesus, I want to do this, he runs after you and says, okay, let's do this. He's always ready. He's not busy writing a sermon for tomorrow. He's not busy working. He's not occupied. He's ready to work on you, to work with you, and to transform you into his likeness whenever you're ready. I think what's next, I think what the world needs most from the church is for followers of Jesus to commit to sanctification, followers of Jesus to commit to becoming like Jesus. And maybe that means we gotta stop being so noisy. Maybe that means we gotta dial back our opinions. Because if you have opinions that you are not living under, then you shouldn't be speaking them. That's what the early church said. We have to be patient. We have to form habits. We have to come under authority and learn and be mentored. And we have to allow things to ferment. And I believe that when followers of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, then we begin to impact the world around us. I think that's what's next. I'm going to invite you to stand. mean to be formed the early church had practices silence prayer study being in groups being in community serving worship fasting you know sometime this year we're going to do a set free weekend which which looks seriously at praying confessing together and seeking the lord to heal wounds in our hearts that are holding us back from imitating him in the world coming forward in prayer ministry or being a part of a prayer ministry outside of a Sunday, mentoring, coaching, discipleship, memorizing scripture, eating together, tithing and giving, observing behaviors that limit our impatient behavior. These were all things that the early church did to help them be formed into Christ-likeness. And so the invitation to you this morning is we take that box out of the closet. I think there's areas in your life and my life that we know that we're not really imitating Jesus in. And we have to stop counting on the world around us to follow Jesus for us and take ownership as a disciple, as a follower, and say, Jesus, I'm not just interested in believing you. I'm interested in following you. So Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we're saved by grace, that there's nothing that we can do to enter into relationship with you. That is a free gift. And we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that you took our sins upon yourself, that you crucified them to the cross. And we thank you that our sins, and we thank you that death does not have the final word because three days later you were resurrected and you said it is finished and you invite us into relationship with you and the Father. 
But Lord, you also invited us to follow you. And so Lord, we apologize. We confess that there's areas in our lives where we haven't opened the box, where we haven't put in the work, where we haven't partnered with you. We recognize that you've been inviting us all along to say, hey, open that box. I'll do it with you. I'll do it with you. And, and we've ignored you. And Lord, we're sorry. It's not only to our detriment, but it's to the detriment of the world around us that is waiting for followers of Jesus to put into actions the things that they proclaim. So would you continue to give us grace, Lord? But would you continue to give us courage through your spirit to be imitators of you in a world that desperately needs to see the good news? In Jesus' name. As we close, I just want to emphasize the importance of understanding salvation past, present, future. Because it's completely easy to misunderstand what's being put before you this morning. In fact, it's been misunderstood over and over through church history. This pendulum swing between uh, grace and works. And at some points, people have behaved like, well, it's through my works that I'm saved, and so i got to become Christ-like enough that I become acceptable to God, and that's not true. That ignores the salvation of our past. That, that ignores what Jesus has done. It ignores the fact that you can't earn that. And so the pendulum swings the other way, and we think, well, since it's done for me, it doesn't matter what I do. And that's not true either, because when you come into relationship with Jesus, he invites you to follow him. He invites you to mimic him. He invites you to become a little Christ. He invites you not to stay where you were, not to put that gift in the closet, but to take it out and work at it with him, knowing that he is going to give you the power and ability to follow him. And so it's both end. And maybe some of you have been working, 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 working to be like Jesus, but you've bought into the lie that is through your work that you become acceptable and that's a lie and that's not true. And so I invite you just to receive forgiveness and grace this morning that God is not against you. He's for you. And he wants, he has a gift he wants to give you. And all you have to do is receive it. I think for some of us, we've received that gift. We identify as a follower of Jesus, but it's kind of stayed there know about God but do you know God have you found freedom are you following him where he's leading you in your life is it impacting your workplace your communities your marriage your kids do you hold opinions and ideas about God but you are slow to actually follow him with your life I think God is inviting us not just to be believers, but to be followers. Not just to have opinions, but to put ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus before we have anything to say. And I think then we will witness and testify to who Jesus is because our life is beginning to reflect who Jesus is. So I'm going to pray to close, and I would invite you at the end, if, if God has stirred in your heart any type of response 
that, you know, I think there's next steps that I need to take, whether that's receiving the gift of salvation through grace, or whether it's maybe moving beyond that and saying, you know, I gotta unbox this thing and I gotta work at it and I need courage. I need persistence. I need not to be alone. I need to tell somebody. Uh, Then we invite you forward. We'd love to pray for you. And we'd also love you to join a group because honestly, that's why we do groups. Because it's hard to follow Jesus in a large gathering. It doesn't really work. We can talk about ideas about God, but the, the rubber meets the road when we start doing life with other people. Maybe that's the next step for you to take. Say, you know what, I'm going to join a community this year. People who are on the same journey. So, Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit knows the story of each person in this room. And I thank you that you have the capacity to speak to us all individually, simultaneously, So we just acknowledge your presence here. Lord, I pray that you would speak, that you would stir in hearts. What we should do to respond to your gift of grace, what we should do to respond to your invitation to follow. Lord, where we need to repent and turn and work at something in our lives with you. And I pray for endurance, I pray for courage. that you have saved us, that you are saving us, and that ultimately one day you will completely save us. May we live with that tension and that perspective as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to invite our prayer teams forward. Feel free to come forward for prayer. Be safe on the roads out there. We'll see you next week.